I started riding, like, really riding bikes um, and racing when I was in grad school. So it wasn't until I moved to Boston that I started riding, kind of initially as a way to get out of the city, explore a little bit more. Turns out the MIT cycling team is really good. Mm-hmm. So it was very easy to get swept along in their excitement. And, you know, you know, everyone can think back about that one formative moment that they had riding with a team that sucked them into the community. And now we're all stuck. Like, mm-hmm. uh, and so for me, that happened in Boston. And, uh, you know, the New England has just got a fantastic cyclocross scene. And so I really fell in love with cross. It was, you know, my, the first discipline I really uh, focused on. Um, and I rode for the Jam Fund up there with Jeremy Powers and Alec Donahue uh, for a couple years. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpri. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpri's all-new, all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe balm today. That's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today has her PhD from MIT in biological engineering. She's a pro gravel rider for Lauf. She rides with the U.S. national track team and is a self-described coffee snob and deprived of coffee, apparently, today. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Christina Birch. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, Christina, first first things first. So if you're listening on iTunes or just audio and you're missing out on the video, Christina's got like kind of picturesque scene in the background going on. So where are you? Why does it look so beautiful behind you? Yeah, I am uh, socially distancing really hard right now. Um, I am at my family's cattle ranch in central Montana. So okay. if you if you looked at a map of Montana and put your finger on the exact center, you would land on us actually. Um, and so we have a like a family ranch that's shared between all my aunts and my dad. Um, that's about ten thousand acres. So I am just on the edge of that right now. So did you grow up like working, like, like working the cattle and doing all that? Um, like, unfortunately, no. I mean, I, I grew up really, uh, went to school in Arizona. Um, but I'd spend summers up here working, uh, getting as much of an experience out here as I can. But that's part of why I'm up here is to, uh, uh, work on the ranch and help out. Okay. Okay. I was like, if you had, I was going to be, you know, after we got done, I'd be like, you're going to have to call my dad. My dad grew up as an only child on a farm. So like he loves to talk, you know, cattle <laughs> and like all that kind of, stuff. it's just, it's his jam. I don't know anything about it because I grew up in the suburbs. <laughs> so there's like this part of, you know, kind of his life that I really can't connect to, but it was, you know, his whole world growing up. So it's, he loves watching people. There's like, like farmers our age on YouTube now. And he's obsessed with watching those people on YouTube. So I was just curious if you had kind of had that experience growing up. Well, we can we can do an adenum. Uh, we're branding tomorrow the last batch of calves. So I can, okay. I can FaceTime you in. <laughs> we could add, add that on the back. Um, so you, you've got a lot going on. It, it seems a little succinct from the, the intro, but um, it, it's kind of hard to figure out where to start. So you came at cycling 
to cycling kind of i'll say late in life quote unquote you, sure. you, you know you weren't doing it from the age of five upwards right correct yeah i started riding like really riding bikes um and racing when i was in grad school so it wasn't until i moved to boston that i started riding kind of initially as a way to get out of the city explore a little bit more turns out the mit cycling team is really good mm-hmm. so it was very easy to get swept along in their excitement and you know you know everyone can think back about that one formative moment that they had riding with a team that sucked them into the community and now we're all stuck like mm-hmm. uh, and so for me that happened in boston and uh you know the new england has just got a fantastic cyclocross scene and so i really fell in love with cross it was you know my the first discipline i really uh focused on um, and I rode for the Jam Fund up there with Jeremy Powers and Alec Donahue uh, for a couple years. Um, I absolutely loved it. Is the MIT team, is it, is, it get, is it split into all the different disciplines? So you have like a road group and you get the cyclocross group or, or how does that set up? Well, um, I'm not sure how much overlap there is between the disciplines now since I've been out of there for, oh, five years. Just, just... <laughs> Just hit my uh, PhD defense five-year anniversary. Okay. Um, but when I was a student there, it was definitely sort of parts parted along disciplines. Um, road, obviously, being the most popular uh, mm-hmm. and well-populated. And part of that was because the uh, Eastern Collegiate Cycling Conference, the ECCC, is fantastically run. It's probably one of the <laughs> one of the best. Uh, cycling organizations I've ever been a part of and um, under the leadership of like Joe Copino was was running it back then and he coordinated amongst all these different New England colleges and we'd have a race every single weekend Mm -hmm. Saturday Sunday and so you get to see people from you know not just across the river at like BU but we would go to um, State College you know to ride against um a whole bunch of teams we'd race against Vermont there, you know, all sorts of stuff. And I think that just having that structure, um, made road really big. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for cyclocross, we kind of tapped into all of the local UCI cross races that were there and collegiate riders just ended up getting scored separately. But so you got, you got introduced to some real like world-class level racing early on. And there was actually, <laughs> there still is a, uh, track in Londonderry, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. It's an old go-kart track, but when I was there, the program was run by Kurt Begeman, um, and he ran a fantastic program, like really, really a tight ship. So even though it was like kind of a questionable facility, you know, kind of, kind of bumpy, you mm-hmm. know, nothing, nothing, you know, that would really stand out. I could go from there and then go race on a 250 and feel comfortable that I was going to follow all the rules, do all the right things and, um, not hurt anybody at least, you know? Yeah. I feel like you're, you're not taking this weird leap from where you are to actually being out there and competing. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was, there's a lot of people in new England that are super passionate about cycling and they're all close together geographically. And I think I really, I mean, I really benefited from that, especially like you said, coming in, coming in late to the sport, mm-hmm. um, you know, like in my, tw- in my twenties, mm-hmm. um, it, it really helped jumpstart, I think my cycling career. That's like, 
the community aspect, and I think you mentioned kind of the ability of the race director to put things together. Like it's, it's always, I don't say surprising to me, but it's so crucial, but it's almost this like hidden element. You know, I, I, I'm out of the cuisine. I don't race professionally, but you know, even just community races, how the race director puts together the race, who they communicate with, how they coordinate everything like affects the quality of the race and how much fun you have. Like you're out there to compete, obviously, but I, I, I actually won't name this particular race, but it was in my 20 years of racing, 10 years, 10 plus years of triathlon. I did this race. It was so poorly run. I will never go back to that race. And I, I speak negatively of it. I won't hear, but just in person <laughs> because the race director, the race director basically changes almost every year. So there's no consistency. So it's just, it's awesome that you, you know, had that person in charge to take care of that aspect. That's like, as racers, we kind of almost forget about it. We're just there to, you know, go kick butt, like do our thing. Well, I think, I think part of it is like the experience of, of racing is, is really personal, right? It's, Mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're rather vulnerable out there. We're putting ourselves out there. We're going as hard as we can, you know, on, you know, trying to, trying to win really, you really put yourself out there. Right. And so any sort of, I feel like any sort of impact that you get any impression from other racers yelling at you, the race director, how everything is run, if it's adding to your stress, like it becomes a very personal thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's why like we all get so worked up about, races that have been really tough or like this one guy that yelled at me to, you know, like I was wearing my saddle, saddle bag wrong or, you know, whatever. Like it's, um, I think it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a little tough to, um, not feel like everything is really personal. Um, mm-hmm. I, I certainly, you know, it's, yeah. Have you developed a routine where you can kind of like start ignoring people? I know that's something like, I know something that develops over time, but, you know, coming late to the sport, like, was that, have you done it and was it more conscious or like put together kind of a mental warm up routine to kind of block everything Mm -hmm. out? You know, like, you know, like Michael Phelps famously listens to certain kind of music before he goes swims. Like, everybody has their own thing, their own kind of routine. I didn't know if you, if you developed one. it seems really common from people that start at a young age and kind of go on to perform at the level that you're able to. Um, so I just didn't know if you had a similar experience. Yeah, I think it's, that's probably been, um, that's been actually a little bit of a shift for me lately since I've reached like the world cup level. Mm-hmm. I think earlier on, um, coming late into the sport, you know, having zero experience cycling prior I think I always had a little bit of an underdog mentality and and I'm very comfortable with that. I'm very, very comfortable in a situation where I'm underestimated and in over my head. And I usually Mm -hmm. over, I usually overperform like in those situations. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, then you you switch gears to being on the national team Mm -hmm. um, at, on the fastest nation in the, in the world right now. Mm -hmm. And you're expected to medal. And so now you kind of have, to, it's a huge mental shift, I think, to say, well, I'm no longer the underdog. I'm no longer trying to prove myself. I'm out here for blood. I'm out here, you know, to, to win, to be aggressive, to, to beat people and to beat them badly. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and it's, and it's obviously a very different, um, different experience if I'm talking about myself racing individually versus racing with a team. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, I think I'm probably much more relaxed now at these, at these races. If, you know, if we go to a world cup or, you know, Pan Am champs or something like that with a team, I tr- trust so much in my preparation that mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like, it's like, finally, everything we've been working for is, is here now. And now I just get to enjoy the process mm-hmm. um, and, and enjoy the racing. And, and of course, that don't go any less hard if you're enjoying everything. There's still like the adrenaline rush. There's still the pain, the bite, you know. Um, but I think, I think that was a huge shift. I think I used to be very high stress uh, early on and not wanting any sort of outside impact, um, to threaten to deviate me from my, from my race line, um, race line. And now it's sort of like, you know, I've had some of my best results when we didn't have bikes for warm up until about eight minutes before we mm-hmm. had to go to the start line, you know, and you're just like, all right, this is, this is my new reality. This, you know, what do I do with this? Yeah. Yeah. It, I, you know, I found as I progressed like into college, I have a lot of expectations for myself, but it found consistently my best days were like, I had a game plan. And then I said, coach, I'm just going to go have fun. Like that's my goal today. If I have fun, then I succeeded. And those are always like, I would always come up with big PRs on those days. Cause you just find something in yourself where you're not worried about it anymore. You know, but that, and maybe you've got an answer to this. Cause I don't, I don't know that I yet have the answer to this. I find the trick is, even if you know that, even if you know, okay, my goal is to have fun and that's how I perform the best, then you're like working this almost catch-22 where you're like, but now I want to do my best, so I'm focusing on making sure I have fun, and then you're like back to high stress. Yeah, I, I think there is definitely a balance and the the immediate environment of the race and the, and the context and everything going into it I think really dictates Um, so I know, you know, thinking back to like my collegiate days when I was racing cyclocross, um, the year I won collegiate nationals, I went in just being like, look, I've done the best I can. I have my best UCI results of the year. Um, I feel like, you know, I really proved to myself that I've made huge improvements, um, and I deserve to be at the front of this UCI pack and whatever happened at nationals happened, you know, and it, and it was very liberating. And so I had a lot more mental energy, I think, to focus on the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then in that, I think it's not that I'm trying to focus on having fun. It's more, my mind is quiet enough to allow the fun in, you know, I'm okay. not, it's not just like this wound spring churning. Yeah. It's the, I, I don't know if this is a Midwestern phrase, but, um, especially when it came to conference or championships, whatever it would be. And I've had a number of coaches over the years. They all, all of them seem to say, hay's in the barn. Hay's in the barn. Hay's in the barn, money's in the bank. Yeah. Uh (laughs) All that, yeah. Yep. It's just like, you've done the work, don't worry about it anymore, you know. Which is so easier said than done. Oh, my God. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I, I, unfortunately, I think I'm a, I'm like a naturally very anxious person. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because I'm very type A, I like to 
control a lot of like control as many variables as possible. I like to think through things in great detail in part because I, I get some pleasure about thinking about plans and things like that. Mm -hmm. But you're right. Sort of ironically, I've had my best results when it's almost like someone cuts me, you know, cuts, cuts loose the leash and Mm -hmm. I can just go for it, you know? And it's like, well, all those things I was worried about are no longer applicable clean slate and and uh there's got to be some some psychology there about you know just some event that really like pulls you truly into the into the present moment Mm -hmm. you know i think that that i think for a race mentality is incredibly powerful i spent a lot of time kind of reading books on you know the winning mindset and like race performance, like all about kind of getting your brain in the right space. And a lot of it seemed to come back to this kind of idea of uh, beginner's mind, like not getting so ahead of yourself that you think, you know, I'm awesome or I, or I don't know that, or I do know that it's like in this place where you, you're not work like a beginner often that's interested in something just, does it they don't worry about am i doing it right am i is my form perfect you know like in your case is my cadence right am i in the right gears am i you know is my line perfect i should have taken it better like you're not worried about all those things it's like it's just right now this is what i'm doing and you make adjustments on the fly because you know no matter what race plan you come come together with and i've executed over the years i've executed race plans where it's like 90% 90% there, like 90% exactly what I thought. And then there's always something, if not a lot, <laughs> that goes wrong yeah. and you've got to adjust. Yeah. I think, I mean, I've talked about this with my with my family, and they know that for me, just getting to the start line is the hardest part. Mm-hmm. As soon as the race starts, it's easy, right? But just getting to the start line um, is the challenge. And so I've got, I have like these, I travel with a notebook that I use for, you know, bike measurement notes, passwords, you know, race journals, whatever. And Mm -hmm. it probably has for every single race, the same exact like to-do list or packing list that I run through. And it's like, well, I'm going to pack the same 30 things every time. Mm -hmm. And somehow instead of, instead of just looking at an old list or trusting my memory, because I've done this so much, I just, I like to remake that list. Mm -hmm. And so part of, part of that is actually the process of making the list has now become part of my process of Mm -hmm. race preparation. It's like, okay, well, I've, I've gone through the checklist explicitly. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it, you know, okay, maybe I wasted 10 minutes, but it was 10 minutes that my brain was occupied on a very specific task. Mm -hmm. Um, and that helped that is, that was like one of the things that seems to help that and I think just like you know I I think for me a lot of my training now is more difficult and more stressful um, than the race itself and, and like you said the same thing hay in the barn you know I'm like I'm worried oh is, are we gonna get enough water is there gonna be enough growth like is the is the hay still wet can I bail it like is it ready you know <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you're you're stressing over that that checklist. May have maybe does a couple things. I mean, first, just kind of calms you down that you know, hey, I, like I've got everything. I've gone over this and gone over this, but like I've got checklists for races 
um, because I always, it's particularly because of the bike, triathlons just have the most nonsense that you've got to bring with you. Um, you know, especially when you're getting on a plane, you got to break the whole bike down, you know, put it in the, I use a, you know, a rooster case. So it breaks it into two cases. Um, so you're essentially breaking it down into almost its basic components and you got to put it back together again. So you got all these pieces, you got, you know, three pairs of shoes and a wetsuit and got just all these things. So I've made a, you know, a checklist that I can just print out. Yeah. The problem being that that checklist will vary depending on whether it's a local race, whether it's far away, if I'm staying more days than average, if, um, you know, there's a new, new nutrition piece. Like, so even having that thing that you could print out is not necessarily helpful. Sometimes it's, it's harmful. Yeah. (laughs) So your method is probably good. Or, or redundant, but you know, it's, it's, it's funny you bring up the the travel component because I feel like that's actually something that um, I used to be pretty terrible at mm-hmm. and found travel really stressful. And so I would often get sick, uh, after traveling. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been sick for some key races, unfortunately. Um, so still, still can compete, but you still like, you know, you're obviously not at your, your, your top. Um, yeah. Yeah. and I think just reducing the stress of travel. So it's like, I don't, I don't even know how many times I've packed, unpacked and packed my, my bike you know, everything has a spot. Like I know when, and now, you know, on the world cup circuit, like you, you become friends with other teams and you know, people that are local. And so if, if you miss something, I know exactly who to talk to If I'm in Poland or if I'm in New Zealand, mm-hmm. you know, I've got, got friends that live down the street. It's, is that's a, been a really cool part of this whole experience. But I think just in, it's been a little bit helpful to adapt that whatever happens, like I'm going to sort it out and just being very, very Zen and, and specifically focusing, uh, on travel and reducing stress during travel has helped a lot. Do you have a, like a typical schedule when you're, tra- you know, traveling? Cause I'm assuming you travel probably a considerable amount more um, than I would in a typical season. I know, um, if I'm flying, like I like to arrive at least a couple days extra to deal with like any kind of swelling from going altitude and plane, anything like that. Do you have uh, like a, a methodology used for travel? Yeah, the travel that we do with Team USA or, or USA Cycling for these World Cup uh, circuits is pretty standard. Uh, we'll get we'll get to a race, um, you know, a week before usually, mm-hmm. and we have the same pre pre race preparation. Um, that we go through every time. Um, so like if we're there a week ahead of time, sounds like a lot, but for track racing, every track is built slightly different. They mm-hmm. all are, you know, 250 meters, um, wooden banked, etc. but how long the straights are, how tight, how tight the turns, how wide, how tall, all of, all of that has some variability. And so when we're talking about races that are won, you know, in seconds or tenths of seconds, mm-hmm you know, dialing in our line beforehand is really important. And so getting to know that the feel of the track, um, is a key part of the race prep. And so you're, you're not stepping out onto the track for the first time come race day. And so we will spend maybe three days on the track three, uh, prior to the, to competition. And then the day of competition, um, we will not touch the track except for competition. So there's open sessions where you can do a warm up on the track, 
but we only do our warm up on trainers because the risk of crashing or being crashed out is really high. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's again one more variable we can control is just to to keep the warm up on the trainer. I do the same warm up every time. Mm-hmm. Um, I might adjust it if I'm feeling a little bit less open and I need a, a harder effort, or if I'm feeling tired, I might do a little bit less. Um, but honestly, I don't. I really don't think that the changes I make in warm up are grossly affecting race performance you know mm-hmm. I, I think the, the mindset you bring to the line is more powerful than oh did I do those you know two one minute efforts or were they two 45 second efforts you know like right right yeah. well but but at the same time I mean that's exactly the point right and I come back to this a lot and I, I do you know I have this other show I just talk about running I talk about mentality sometimes but it's like you're brain is in charge of your body and like if you just focus on this is a physical sport be it cycling or running or swimming or you know football or whatever it is then you're like okay you're missing out on the engine like your brain is running the body you know so even if you're making those adjustments and it doesn't physically make a difference like if it makes you feel better that it did make a difference (laughs) yeah it's it's funny that you mention it as an engine because one of our um, one of my favorite uh, Swan years, uh, we have a, a bunch of physical therapists that we'll, we'll work with as we're traveling, mm-hmm. has referred to me as a sports car. So body like a sports car, McLaren or whatever, but my brain is like a Ford. Um, and so, I, and it's true, it, like, I, and, I, and I sometimes blame the PhD end of this because I'm constantly overthinking things and my brain is running at hundred miles an hour and sometimes it just needs to shut up yeah. and just, just chill. And so that's, I think I, I envy a lot of athletes that have been doing this for their whole lives because they've maybe grown up learning to temper an overthinking mind mm-hmm. for sport. Yeah. And for me, that's, that's not my natural state. Right. Um, and I mean, you know, here, here on the ranch, like if you're not overthinking things, you could be missing something that could result in massive damage to machinery, or you could get stuck in the machinery and you could lose an arm or you could die, Yeah. you know? So I was kind of raised with this very hyper awareness, um, like thinking process. And that's good if you're sort of in the moment of a race and you're very in tune with your, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but if you're just overthinking, uh, in, it turns very quickly into worry or that, that wound spring. Yeah. That, that makes me think of, um, this kind of a favorite phrase I have from a, a college coach of mine, because I do the same kind of thing where it's just like, whatever particular workout we were doing on the track, I don't know now, you know, it's been lost to my brain, but doing some kind of workout. And I guess I was just asking a lot of questions and really trying to think about like every 200 meter segment. Um, so anybody that's not familiar with the track, it's 400 meters. So 200 meters is half of the lap. So I try to think about my pace in 200 meter segments and really trying to break down like every interval. And he was like, Jesse, do you know why stupid people are so much faster than you? Because they don't think about how much it hurts. They just run. Yeah. 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 Yep. I, <laughs> I ran, I ran cross country in high school and I had a coach tell me something very similar, like mm. just 
run, you know? So yeah. this is a, clearly a trend. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. It, but, you know, you've probably experienced it by now that you can get to that place where you're not overthinking anymore. You know, it's just it's, like, yeah. there's a little bit of, I think, consternation. I'll speak for you. Feel free to correct me. Consternation on our part where we're like overthinking about how to get to the place where we're not overthinking. We are like, I want to be there. How do I get there? So that you're like working on it. And that's the complete opposite of what you're supposed to be doing. I definitely remember that, that space. I, I yeah. feel like now, um, you know, this last year in particular was just so much racing, so much travel. Mm-hmm. It, I, I think I almost never left that just chill. This is where we're at. This is the reality kind of mindset. And I think that it, it came with a lot of practice. Yeah. I think repetition beats it out of you is the short version. True. I mean, and I think you can, you can do that with a lot of repetitions squished into a short amount of time, which is yeah. my cycling story. Or I think you can do that, you know, if you've been riding since you're a junior and you spread it out over, you know, 20 years of racing. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's that consistency where you have that natural tendency in our case, overthinking, and then you just, you do it over and over and over and over again. And finally, like your brain slowly starts to calm down and you don't necessarily notice the change because it's so gradual or maybe you did because it is so compressed for you. But yeah, it, it just, just seems like, like the more I raced in college, I, I would stop getting nervous before races. Like everybody else would be nervous. And I remember being nervous to start, but just, you know, we raced 24, 25 weeks out of the year. And it's like, it's literally every other weekend when you spread the whole year out, but then it was every weekend for a whole, you know, a whole season. And then you get a couple of weeks off and do it again. Just like, it's just the same thing again. Like, why am I nervous? We're just, we're going to do it again next weekend, you know? Sure. So that's where I think that for, at least for me, that theory comes from the repetition beats it out of you. Yeah. And I think for me now, the, the pre-race nerves are empowering. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's part of how I know that I'm, I'm ready. Yeah. Um, and I'm mentally tuned, tuned in and, and it's no longer such a, it's not a negative feeling at all. It's, it's part of the preparation. So. One of the things that always perplexes me about cyclists is how do you deal with the different disciplines? So, I mean, you're racing gravel and you're also racing track, which at least in my mind, you know, my cycling background is basically like, you know, in triathlon and I get scared going 35 miles an hour downhill. Like I'm not a great bike handler. You know, I, I know how to go fast in a straight line and that's about it. So like, how, you know, well, you're ready you... for team pursuit. <laughs> okay. I mean, how do you, you know, how do you deal with that? Like, is it a big deal uh, or is it just, or, or like, am I overblowing like how different they are? I think they are different. Um, I think, you know, coming, coming to gravel was sort of, for me, it felt like a return to cyclocross in a way, mm-hmm. only just like an extended ultra long distance cyclocross race with much fewer technical features. Okay. You know, it's like one of the things that I was really good at in cyclocross was uh, very efficiently moving over the barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one of my favorite parts of the race. And I've always, always felt really confident there. Um, and in gravel, there isn't, there isn't any running. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> thank goodness. 
Um, but you know, it's, I mean, I've seen the bike handling skills that I, that I built in cyclocross and like those muddy icy courses in new England, I've seen that translate to the track where I get put in a, in a tight situation or I get myself into trouble. Um, maybe I'm overlapping wheels with someone like in a recent race, I was actually fully touching my front wheel on their back wheel. Mm-hmm. Um, just because there was a pinch and I think just being able to ride something out, you know, changing your, changing your balance. Um, if you get, if you get bumped and you skip a wheel on the track, like just not panicking. And I think if you can, mm-hmm. if I, if I've learned anything from cross, it's how to have the bike move under me and yeah. shift my weight appropriately. Um, and so I feel like that's really saved me in, on the track a few times where you'd think that, well, there's no mud here, you know, this is going to be a pretty, um, straightforward, tra- straightforward sport. And then in, in cycle or in gravel, it's, I, my experience is, you know, I'm still rather new to, um, new to it, but I, of the races that I have done, it's been a lot of straight shots, you know, maybe with some power climbs and then one turn and then a straight shot, a couple turns. But, um, I think, I think it's all, I think it's all bike riding. And I think if you go into tricky situations, be they a descent on a, a TT bike or a gravel turn where the gravel's loose, mm-hmm. I think the bike, this is going to sound weird and I don't really believe what I'm saying because I'm a scientist, but the bike can sense our fear or confidence as a rider. Mm-hmm. So if you go into that situation with fear, it's going to manifest in tense muscles, uh, rigidity on the bike where you need to have a little bit more flow. Um, and you're more likely to have something bad happen like a crash. Yeah. But if you go into a, go into a corner with confidence, you know, there's, you know, not cavalier, but with, um, you know, sort of like an, an ownership of, of the bike, I think you're much more likely to be able to ride, ride through a tricky situation. Yeah. I and definitely I actually, can relate I, to that. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, like, um, at the Dirty Kanza last year, I did the 100-mile race, so just, just yeah. the shorty. Yeah. Um, but they had this one descent through a bunch of really rough rocks right before a turn. And all of this was happening in traffic as the front group of the 100 was catching the back group of the 200. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking the same thing, I, I think, in any race when there's a tricky situation is a little bit more pressure on the pedals rather than more brake. Mm-hmm. And I find that that, that is, puts me in that right mindset of, no, I'm, I'm here to, to navigate through this really purposefully. And, and um, you know, I'm sure there's some good physics behind putting, putting more pressure down, more traction to the wheels. Yeah. Like that. So you're talking about um, the bike kind of sensing what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely relate to that where it's like, you know, and then also mentioning putting the pressure down. I think that's why I feel like the hills freak me out sometimes. Cause I get going fast enough where like I can't gear and then put any kind of pressure down. Like I'm just, you know, I have no ability to put more speed into the bike to change where it's going. So then it's, it's just a coast, you know, I'm just coasting down and then I'm subject to Missouri does not have the best of roads and then, you know, wind or whatever is going to push me around. 
And uh, so I think that freaks me out. And I notice, like, when, like, if I'm more freaked out or anxious, then, like, it's going to be worse and I'm more likely to crash. And I know, I know there have been times when I've been racing, I've cut around a corner, like, just a 90 degree, and for whatever reason, misjudged it, popped off the road. I'm now on gravel with my time trial bike. And then somehow I get back on the road. I wasn't worried. I wasn't freaked out. I was just like, oh, this is what I'm doing now. And <laughs> I go on about my yep. day. Um, but yeah, so I like, I, I definitely lived those two mentalities and, and can sense the difference. And again, it's a matter of like, at least I go back to like repetition will beat it out and beat it out of me. I just slowly build up the pressure like, okay, this hill, maybe I'll go. 25 26 and then the next time i'll go 27 28 just build up the speed you know i i just don't have the like bike handling skills that you do or the background so you know i have to take these a little bit slower <laughs> hey no i mean but, it's i think i think it's really good to to set like personal challenges regardless right. of what they are right they're they're personal because they're personal right um and you know, important to each of us. And I think that, I think those little challenges are so great. I think it, it would be different if you were sitting there saying, ah, well, you know, 25 is good enough. Well, I'll just, I'm never going to go faster than 25. Yeah. And some people have their reasons for that. But I think, um, I think the, the little pushing the envelope a little bit here and there, whatever the personal challenges is really important. Yeah. You know, I don't, I I mean, I'm different when I race too, which is interesting, you know, like, I've gone over, I don't know what it was, 40, 41, 42, something like that in, on a hill in a race. Didn't bother me then, you know. But if I'm out just practicing by myself and I'm going like 27 and it's windy, I'm like, oh, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't like it. Sure, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. No, I mean, I, I definitely, my risk aversion has gotten higher uh, yeah. with age. I have noticed that. Uh, yeah, when I, I first... wonder about that. I think it's actually real. I I thought that I was not going to be susceptible to it, but you know, now in my early 30s, I'm like, well, maybe 60 miles an hour on that descent wasn't so smart. Like, yeah. you know, um, but it's still fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, I wonder too. Have you? Um, I assume you've probably crashed at some point in time. A few times. Yeah. So, like, I talked with. Uh. This is way back on episode six. I think it's episode six. Cecilia Davis Hayes. So she was a um, pro triathlete, but she used to race Cat One, um, and she crashed and like broke her pelvis and just I don't know. She broke other things too, but that was like the thing that I remembered most. We kind of talked, and I'd crashed in a race and broke my collarbone, which is pretty common with cycling. And uh, we kind of talked about the mentality of coming back after a crash, you know, where you have that trepidation because you did just go through this traumatic event and your brain's like you're an idiot like stop doing that you broke us you know mm. and kind of getting back through that so you know since you've crashed do you remember that kind of period after that working back in did you have that trepidation or is it just like back on the bike i think I, in some ways, got a little lucky and didn't have to face that because mm-hmm. most of my crashes, there was an immediate, you know, requirement in the situation to get back on the bike. Right. Um, so, like, one of my, one of my bad crashes, I crashed on the, onto my shoulder mm-hmm. um, at uh, the track in T-Town uh, in Pennsylvania. 
and I actually have like a little bit of blue from the blue line mm-hmm. um, <laughs> embedded in my shoulder from that crash. Got an involuntary but, tattoo. Yeah, and it was, but it was, um, it was na- nationals, and so I had to get back up and finish finish the race that we were in, and then mm-hmm. continue on with all of the other racing that was there. And so I I didn't have I didn't have any moment to think about it other than well, I need to. You need to get a new jersey, um, mm-hmm. stop the bleeding, and and that kind of thing. So that I think I think there's something to be said if if you can to get back on, yeah, uh, right away. But in to be fair, I've mean, I've been really lucky. I think in the crashes that I've had, um, I I I've heard of people, especially like people that have started riding bikes since they were juniors, mm-hmm. being taught how to crash appropriately so you mm-hmm. minimize injury. Yeah. How to tuck and roll. Um, I, I missed out on all that. It was, yeah. you know, it, <laughs> I am not quite sure how I've gotten away with no big, I'm going to jinx myself now, but uh, no terribly bad injuries. But yeah. I think, I think you're right. I think we, you know, I've, I've told my, my dad when I started cycling, I was like, look, I'm probably going to break my collarbone eventually. Like, yeah. you know, um, that's, that seems to be the common the common thing. Well, you just go down on your, your shoulder, and I always felt like for the longest time. So I didn't. I was never taught how to like crash on a bike. But I grew up in martial arts, and you work on how to fall properly, how to distribute the energy from your body to the ground so that you're not you know leaving it into a single point so that you don't break things. And you know, I think I think it was my very first year of triathlon. I I was kind of forced into a crash around a wet corner and then it was like 200 meters from transition. So I got back on the bike, got the bike in, ran the 10 K I've got pictures with this, like, like blood going down my arm makes for a good story. But not that I was like, I crashed. That was fun. It was not fun, but yeah, I don't, I don't feel like I had the same, the same kind of like mental effect as you know, it would have been, I would have been probably 20 then and then 28 when I crashed, broke my collarbone. And that's where I wonder where it's like, you know, does age have that factor as well? 28 is not mm-hmm. old, but I do notice like, I like to, I, I put on more clothes in the wintertime when I go out and run. I don't like to be as uncomfortable. Like, I'm just like, I'll just be hot. Like it's, you know, I just notice these little things as I get older. And I wonder how much that plays into that you know that resilience getting back on after hmm. whatever accident that's interesting i i definitely i don't I, I don't know about that um it's funny you mentioned putting on more clothing um i i found myself like doing that in other parts of my life mm-hmm. um like i think and i think it comes from i hurt myself so much in training mm-hmm. like every interval or every gym session that it is like an absolute luxury to be, you know, warm inside, you know, yeah. like, um, and, and little things like that. It's, it's like so much of my mental energy is directed towards giving a hundred percent, uh, when I'm training or, or racing, uh, that, that I, I am less, less interested in being uncomfortable mm-hmm. for without a good purpose. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that people call that getting soft, but yeah, well, that's I was, and there's this this idea that like the stories we tell ourselves about who we are, 
you know, and you had made me think about this earlier when you're talking about you're comfortable being the underdog, but then when you're no longer, because that was the story that you told yourself who you are, and then that's no longer your story and you're trying to figure it out. So, you know, there's this story we tell ourselves as athletes where it's like, you know, I'm strong. And then you notice yourself getting softer and you're just like, I don't, this isn't good. Like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be this person. And you have to like adjust that story inside your head to still be able to, you know, compete and do your job, but then yeah. cope with, you know, wanting to be more comfortable. You're like, no, it's okay. Like, I'm going to stay inside. I'm not going to go deal with the cattle. I'm just going to sit here. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> Hey, now I was out in the field all day yesterday. Thank you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, it does make me think about, I just did a video um, because the people, a lot, of, a lot of people ask about, especially I deal with runners. So in my case, runners, but I, I think this happens with cycling too. New people are like, why does the first like five minutes suck so much when you get going? And sometimes I think it has to do with temperature. Do you experience that? that just like initial kind of momentum, just it, it's not great. Or are you like ready to go all the time? Is this a question about, about track or just, what? just training in general? Like when yeah. you go out for training, any training ride. Cause I would definitely say that, you know, track our race is over in four minutes and some. Yeah, no, I, no, I just mean like, say, so like, <laughs> say you're going out for a training ride, you're going to be out for an hour. Yeah. And just the first five minutes you get going. Do you, do you, ever or often experience that like things just don't feel right and then you're i mean you always know you're fine but just that initial getting going do you ever experience that kind of hurdle yeah sometimes it it is accentuated if i'm riding with other people who want to start out uh, at a quicker pace than than i want to okay um sometimes it accelerates that warm-up period you know so instead of being like not quite in the zone for five minutes it's now down to two um, but I mean, I've had a couple of rides recently cause I'm, um, been spending a lot of time on the road bike and now I've just switched over to my gravel bike out here that where it, it took me an hour today to feel like, oh, okay, this is like, this is my powerful position. Now I can really go, you know, um, it took me a whole hour. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, it's, I, I think just the reason I ask is cause it's always nice both for people to hear it from somebody besides me, but also to know that, you know, like you're, you know, racing at a very high level and still experience that from time to time. It's not just like a beginner's problem. Sure. I mean, I've, I've gone to the start line of races having like an absolute trash warm up that felt terrible and we, we rode great, you mm-hmm. know? So sometimes I think a, a big part of being an athlete is dissociating the feels from performance because mm-hmm. the performance aspect has nothing like is not dependent on the feel right. as long as it's not affecting your your brain right right um so it could feel great and or it could feel like shit that isn't that doesn't actually matter what matters is the performance right so, right yeah unlinking the two is is a really powerful uh um really powerful tool yeah i i like to preach um ready to perceive exertion a lot for training and for racing really. Um, but cycling is a little bit different. Do you use a power meter in both cases or not at all? Oh, can you say that again? Do you, for, so when you're racing and training, are you using a power, power meter on your bike? Yeah. Yep. Um, I use a power meter all the time now. Um, mm. 
I, I kind of stopped wearing a heart rate monitor for a while because I didn't really do anything with the data. I would use it to sort of match up how was my perceived exertion with my power. And sometimes my heart rate would kind of fill in the gaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, power is absolutely critical and cadence as well, since so much of the work I do on the track is very cadence specific. Right. Uh, I, I have to be putting out very high power at a very high cadence. Mm-hmm. And um, if I didn't have those those tools, I I would kind of be shooting in the dark. But that's we're talking real precision training, right. you know. Right. Uh, do I think that those things are necessary? No. Do I look forward to to riding and racing without a power meter? Absolutely. Because um, I'm staring at those numbers the whole time, and sometimes yeah. my evaluation of was this a good training ride or you know did I do a good job today gets wrapped up in that little number. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it shouldn't, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's just it's nice, that's one thing it's I nice noticed. To validate that, you. Yeah. I just noticed that's, that's such a big difference between like my background running and then coming to cycling is like getting obsessed with that power meter and like, what is it doing? And you know, how can I adjust it? And you know, yeah. where's my training zone today? And all those kind of things. It's like, it becomes so much more analytical, at least for me compared to, I can be analytical with the run and you, you know, you're like, okay, I want to be in these times, but it's also, I try to be more, I guess I'll say holistic with it where it's like, this is what it feels like today. You know, this is the effort that I should be going at. And then I like, like if I'm out of the track, it's like, okay, this is the effort I want or the coach wants me to do. And then I start the watch. I don't look at it until I finish the interval, mm-hmm. you know, and usually I'm right in where I want to be. But mm-hmm. if I, you know, if I'm fast, good. If I'm slow, because I'm tired, fine. But with the power meter, it's like you're really more obsessed with this needs to be right. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how I feel today. Like these are where the numbers need to be. Yeah. Some of, I mean, some of my favorite, um, some of my favorite workouts that my coach Ben Sharp gives me are maximal efforts. Mm-hmm. So it'll be, you know, 30 seconds or, um, you know, repeats of one minute as hard as you can go. Yeah. And those are painful, but they are so mentally simple, you mm-hmm. know, just, just go dump all your power, you know? Yeah. Um, and so those are, those are really refreshing as opposed to, you know, go sit at tempo for an hour at the end of a four hour, four or five hour ride. Yeah. And you're just st- staring at that number, waiting for it to drop. Yeah. But, I find those are almost more mental training than they are physical training. I mean, they are physical training, but it's like just having the the will to sit at that slightly uncomfortable level because it's not going hard, you know, tempo, you're not going hard, but you're not going easy. It's just, it's just like just kind of annoying level. you got to sit there forever. It's probably my favorite zone, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Especially if I can do it over geared and I just sit there and just churn – um, that's interesting though, that you bring up the, the mental aspects of the, the long, the long distance efforts, mm-hmm. because I've been, I've been talking to a couple people, uh, about doing some very long distance, uh, like riding. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to, there's a, yeah, I don't, I don't want to spoil too much, but there's like a, a long distance record that I would like to get, um, okay. that, will require, you know, ultra longevity, mental focus. Yeah. And I think the longest race I've ever done is a, a 101 
mile mountain bike race. Mm -hmm. uh, it was called Wilderness 101. And it was in, in Pennsylvania. And I think it took me like nine hours um, of riding to do. And I remember being pretty cracked at the end and just, you know, I, I mean, I think, I think maybe my longest ride before that had been a, a five hour road ride mm -hmm. and people have been telling me about these ultra long, you know, they do, people do 24 hour mountain bike races or yeah. the, which is about the, the length of time I'm thinking about, um, is that you really just have to be able to finish, you know, a six hour ride somewhat comfortably and mm -hmm. not feel totally cracked. And then the rest of it is just your mental, your yeah. mental focus. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a definitely a mental shift. Um, when I was doing 70.3s, the half Ironmans, my Sundays, every pretty much every, well, during normal training, so I had two weeks on, one week off, I go out for a five-hour ride, I get home, I go run for a half hour. And it, I mean, it took time to build up to that, but just after two, two, two and a half hours in, you're just kind of like, your brain just sits back. Like it can't, you can't stay like on on for five hours you know but there is a focus that's still there at least i can't i guess i'll say <laughs> i was just i made the face because i was thinking what it immediately brought to mind was um dk this past year which was a five and a half hour race the hundred mm -hmm. for me and i remember i was feeling really good and about two two hours in two and a half hours in i flatted out of the front group Mm -hmm. um and I was sitting there like pumping up my tire for like 20 minutes and the next three hours until I got to the finish line was time trialing as hard as I could mm -hmm. um by myself trying to catch all of these groups that passed me and I think that is maybe the only time in my life I've been so focused mm -hmm. for so long you know and it was I mean it was I absolutely shut down after that race i was exhausted yeah. mentally physically yeah i think it, those are the times where it's like you're almost able to kind of touch into that survival instinct you know that we have where it's like you are in a place you're not in a good place and you're like your brain is prepared to push your body as hard and as far as it needs to go to get to your goal and it's probably farther than your body really should go. And it just, it's done when, when you hit that finish line, you know, in, in our case, a literal finish line, but in a survival case, you know, getting to you know, society or some kind of rescue, it's like you hit that and you're just, you're gone. You know, mm -hmm. I think that's probably where that comes from. But it, I, I mean, it sounds like obviously painful, but a very magical moment at the same time, to, you know, to have been through that. Yeah. And I think what's really neat about the longer, longer format races is there's enough time over the, the course of 100 miles, right, to, to go through multiple mood states and oh, yeah. have multiple little battles, right? I'm sure you experience this doing, you know, long distance triathlon. Yeah. Um, but it's like, and one of the things I really enjoyed about, I've done a, a couple of races with a partner, um, is you and your partner are usually offset as who's mm -hmm. to, who's who's in crisis, uh, and so it it is really interesting to sort of push push through um, that that low period. And again, like with with practice and repetition, you know that if you just get through that low period, it's it's going to get better. Mm -hmm. You know, you you have eighty miles left; it's going to get better. 
Yeah. Got plenty of time to improve. Right. Um, before we run out of time, I want to ask you a little bit about your PhD. Um, so what we've been too busy talking about racing. <laughs> yeah. Um, been a huge, huge part of my life for the last five years. Yeah. You do a lot of racing. We might talk about a lot of racing. Um, but I do want to ask, so I, you spent a considerable amount of time to get a PhD uh, from MIT, no less, and have stepped away from academia to race. So, I mean, going from that to racing, have you seen, like, what kind of mental shifts have, have you had to make? And do you have any plans on going back? Those are excellent questions. Um, so I think, uh, so a, a little, a little back, um, backstory. Um, when I first graduated uh, with my PhD in 2015, I moved out to LA to try the track, to try riding on the track. Had mm -hmm. no real experience, but just went for it. Like the probably that's the the biggest jump I've ever made without any sort of net to catch me. Mm -hmm. And it has been an awesome experience. I would, I would not change that at all. Um, when I first moved out there, I taught for three years uh, at the university level, one year at UC Riverside and two at Caltech. And it was that, that second year at Caltech where I knew that I, if I wanted to go further, to race with a national team um, around around the world, I had to I had to pull the plug and just stop. Um, and I think my first year of teaching a full course load, you know, average class size, eighty students, upper upper division, biochemistry, senior design classes, and in, in engineering, the incredible amount of hard work and pressure that that was mm -hmm. and having to develop course materials the night before 20, you know, 24 hours before two hours before a class, I'm going to teach thinking like, how, how am I going to pull this together at the last minute? How am I going to make this worth 80 students time? You know, like I don't want to waste their hour of time. I want to give them something useful. That experience was probably one of the most formative of my life. Certainly the most challenging year, a first first year teacher, um, and I would encourage anyone that has any interest in teaching or helping others or in personal self growth to go be a teacher for a year. It is incredibly humbling, incredibly hard, but that probably taught me so much about adaptability, my own like personal ability to 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 conjure something out of nothing, you know, a lesson plan. In, in two hours and, and make it good. And I think it, for me, that really instilled a lot of trust that no matter what situation I'm dropped into or whatever I choose to do next, I have complete faith that I will figure it out or I will find the people that know how to do it and get them to help me or teach me how to do it. And I think all of that came from teaching, uh, honestly. Not, you know, a little bit maybe from my PhD because I was working on a solo project for five years that, you know, was literally nothing. It was just an idea and then became a, pro you know, a publication. Um, and so I think that, that that mentality, bringing that into this racing scene where it's like, well, I have zero experience as a track racer. 
you know, but I have full faith that I will work harder than anybody else to get the fitness, to get the experience as, as quickly as I can to get to where I want to go. Um, that was a huge mental shift, just that self-efficacy and self-confidence. Um, and I think that I am not fully decided of whether or not I want to go back to academia or something, something related. I do really miss um, experiments. I miss doing research. Um, and I really miss talking to people about science and asking questions and being confronted with these kind of unknowns that become problems that you work on in the lab. I, I miss that a lot. Um, but no matter, like, no matter what it is next, it, I have full faith that I will figure it out. I'll just have to convince the people sitting on the other side of the interview table that um, that's, that is also the case and that's how I work. I think it comes across. I think if, I think if you really do believe in yourself, I mean, that'll come across. If, if you're at the interview table, then you probably have some sort of qualification to be there, right? You know, it's not like, like if I went to go interview for like a job you're qualified for, clearly that interview is not going to go well because I don't belong there. So, you know, even if I have a lot of confidence, like it, it wouldn't work well. But if you have, you know, if you do belong there and have the confidence, I think that comes across. Yeah, I think the, the belonging is maybe, uh, you know, to be debated because I'm, I am far further out from my PhD without having had a hand in the research end of, uh, of the field. Mm -hmm. I've, I've still taught, I've taught the material, I've learned the material, I've learned I worked as a communicator of scientific information, so I'm mm -hmm. so much better at communicating. I hope that comes across in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, uh, I, I think that, you know, no matter where I go next, there's going to be a little bit of a jump start. but that's, again, kind of what I'm used to. Jump into the deep end and swim. Yeah, yeah. And I, I wouldn't worry too much about coming across well in the podcast. Uh, anybody that listens frequently is probably like, Christina, you're a better speaker than Jesse is. So just stay. You'll be the new host and we'll send him on his way. Um, Unlikely. <laughs> you got things to do. Um, so I'm asking everybody the same question this year um, because I think it kind of crosses boundaries no matter what we do. Um, so I'm asking everybody what do you think the purpose of sport is? I'm going to, I'm going to answer one, one facet of that. Cause obviously. Right. It's, it's deep, but yeah, whatever yeah. sticks out to you. I mean, I think especially, this is especially relevant now because we're not allowed to compete with each other, you know, we're not, there's, there's not an immediate physical community around us as athletes, mm -hmm. but sport is, sport is still a part of our lives. Um, sport is still a part of our identity. And I think that um, a huge part of that is personal improvement, personal betterment, um, challenge, adaptation, survival, growth. Like, I think that that is you know, we, we, there's something about being human that draws us to seek out challenges, dangers, you know, unknowns. And I think that this is a, a 
a great way to do that, you know, to find your boundaries and push them and, and on your terms. Cause what that needs to be is obviously different for different people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a person drawn to extremes, but you know, my sister has much smaller goals that are just equally as valuable and she uses sport to achieve those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, th- I think it is, yeah, a, 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 both a lens and a path for self-improvement. And I think we, I think, you know, I think we all should be striving to be better, better in sport, better human beings. I, um, I have a friend who is, we were both kind of together trying to become professionals and, um, she lives in town. One of the few people that actually lives in town, she's particularly religious. So sometimes we have conversations in the context of God, not that I'm particularly religious, but so this is how this one phrased. And, um, I don't know if you went to church growing up, but often there would be phrases and talking about like the gifts that you're given as an individual and whether you believe in God or not, I think that phrase can still be true that you have certain gifts and talents, um, that you are given as an individual, be it through pure chance or divine intervention. I have no idea. Um, but we would talk about how, you know, the lack of pursuing those gifts that we've been giving to develop them to their full potential is to waste the talent and things that we have been given that we're fortunate and should be grateful that we have, because we have talents that other people don't have that maybe they wish they had and vice versa, you know, but just being mindful of the things that you do have and progressing as an individual is so important because you let yourself down and your community down by not, you know, trying to become the best that you can be. So I can definitely identify with that kind of sentiment. Yeah. I think, I think the specifics of that are, are so, so personal, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think as long as, yeah, you're trying, trying to put, I think the effort, you know, having effort for something in life is really important. Having a passion for life is or something in life that you care about is important. You know, for, for me, you know, I don't, I don't particularly care about, you know, I don't care what it is that this person is interested in, but I love it if they're excited about it. You know, mm-hmm. it could be scotch tape. And I, if they're really into it, I'm like, wait a minute, maybe there's something to scotch tape that I'm missing. Right. And, you know, tell me a little bit more. Um, but I think, I mean, I think you hit on something there, which is like you said, the gifts that we are given. And I think that, um, one thing that we all have is some amount of time mm-hmm. and how we invest that time and who we invest it with and what we invest it on is, is what defines us as a human and, and our lives. And I think that that's, you know, like I want to use my time. Well, I want to experience all of these extremes that um, whatever, whatever limit I can take that to be it the mental aspects or the physical We'll end here so we can end on, I'll say a high note. It's a little somber, but it is, it's a very good note. Um, Christina, is there any way for people to keep in touch with you, social media, anything like that, if they want to kind of see how your career is going, what you're up to? Sure, absolutely. Um, I am relatively active on social media. Um, my Instagram is huplikewo, which is H-U-P-L-I-K-E-W-H-O. 
OA, uh, which comes from cyclocross because people yell hup, hup, hup. Okay. Um, uh, same for Twitter, and then I'm rarely on Facebook these days, but some stuff pops up there. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for spending time with me, Christina. Yeah, thanks so much for chatting.